Well, good morning. It's an honor to be back with you. I was here a number of years ago. I don't remember, it was five or six years ago or so, but uh, it's always exciting to return and have a very exciting, very unique message this morning. It's all going to be focused on the authority of God's Word, that we can trust it from cover to cover. And as I was sitting in the first service, listening to you know, praise and worship music and singing, uh, one of the lines was, nothing is better than you, meaning nothing is better than God. I was thinking about that, and that's what Christians believe. Nothing is better than God. But I also realized that atheists believe the same thing. They believe that nothing is better than God. <laughs> they, they would rather have nothing. They say nothing created everything. They really, literally believe that. And we, we believe God created everything, and uh, the science behind that makes a lot more sense than nothing doing anything. That's a whole another talk. I'm not going to be giving that presentation here this morning, but it's just an interesting thing to think through. But we're going to be taking a look at the authority of God's Word this morning, and I'm going to do this now because I'll probably forget if I don't do it right away, but um, some of you might know Dr. Jason Lyle, an astrophysicist. He's going to be in the area speaking at um, Calvary Chapel, Philly next Saturday night. He's going to be giving a talk about logic. It's actually really interesting, and I wrote a book on logic as well, and he endorsed the back of it. It's out on my table there. And the Toast, the family, they're from Calvary Chapel, Middlesex. They're down here helping me at my table today. They also help him. So they're going to be helping him next Saturday night, Calvary Chapel, Philly, and then next Sunday night, uh, Calvary Chapel, South Jersey. He's giving a talk on dinosaurs. So if you're interested in getting more information in addition to what you hear today, uh, check those out as well. He's a, a great speaker and a good friend of mine. Since some of you don't remember me or some of you were not here when I spoke before, I'm going to go over my background really quickly because I always say you probably don't know me from a hole in the ground. So there's me and there's a hole in the ground. So I just put that up there as a warning. I have a very dry sense of humor I have to put up with for a little bit. I don't think the doors are locked, so if you need to leave, that's fine. But another thing I just added last night to this is um, where I'm staying while I'm in the area. So my name is Jay Siegert, so I thought I need to stay at Siegert Lodge. So I had a lot of other choices. Some places would probably be a little bit nicer, but I thought, I just have to. I have to stay there. So that's why I'm stay, uh, where I'm staying while I'm here in the area. I'm flying back to Wisconsin where I'm from um, tomorrow. But my background, I was raised in a Christian home, and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. And uh, I was raised to believe the Bible cover to cover, and I did. I, I didn't doubt it at all. I went to public schools all the way through high school. And then when I graduated... <laughs> I went to a Christian college in Arkansas, John Brown University, to study mechanical engineering. I got a degree there, but then I became more interested in physics. John Brown didn't have a physics major there, so I had to leave and went back to Wisconsin and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get a degree in physics. And that's when my world changed quite a bit, going from the small Christian college where my engineering professors actually opened up every class in prayer. It was pretty cool. But when I got to the state university, my physics professors, I don't know if they forgot, but they didn't open up in prayer. <laughs> they were all evolutionists. Some of them were atheists, and they were telling me, literally telling me that everything I believed was wrong. And that made me feel very uncomfortable to be surrounded by those Ph.D. scientists. I assumed that they had a lot of evidence for what they believed. I found out later they, they really didn't. That's a whole other story. Um, but I realized for the first time in my entire life that even though I knew what I believed, I didn't know why. How did I really know that God existed? 
How did I know the creation account was scientifically valid? That was huge studying physics. How did I know there was a worldwide flood? How did I know Jesus was the Son of God? How did I know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I was raised to believe all of those things, and I did believe them. I just couldn't defend it. So God put it on my heart at that point in my life to start looking into those things. So I have been looking into those things and lecturing now for 37 years, <laughs> traveling all over the country, and I've been in eight other countries as well. And I founded a ministry a little over 15 years ago called the Starting Point Project. And here's the reason behind the name. Everybody starts somewhere with their belief system. It's impossible not to start somewhere. Christians start with the belief that God exists and the Bible is the Word of God. That's our starting point. And then we use that starting point to define everything else. What science and logic are, ethics, morality, philosophy, all those things are defined by our starting point. And then you can ask other people, hey, what's your starting point? They probably won't even realize they have one. But if they think through it, they'll say something, and then you can ask them a simple question. What made you choose that as your starting point? And why are you confident that that will help you accurately define everything else? And you can get into some really good conversations, and it doesn't have to be caustic or combative or anything. It's just a, kind of a natural segue into talking about the Christian worldview. I was also invited to be on the board of directors of a group called Logos Research Associates. It's the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and creationists. The founding member, Dr. John Sanford, he's from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented the gene gun, inserts genes into the DNA. Worldwide famous for that. It's used all over the place. Brilliant scientist, but very strong Christian, very, very humble man. Then there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Just off the charts, you know, brilliant. Even secular geologists use that model. And then there's two other board members and myself. And I always say, as smart as these guys are, and they're, they're brilliant, if they were here this morning, they would be the first to admit out of all five board members, I am the tallest. <laughs> and that, that's true. Um, but great group of guys. Uh, I get to hang around them, and they're doing cutting-edge scientific research. I get to take it and translate it into something we call English <laughs> because they, you know, it's very, very technical, a little bit hard to grasp for some people, and they're, they're not necessarily gifted as speakers, so I get to serve as the middleman. And so I'm traveling around uh, sharing a lot of these things, some of which you'll hear this morning. So this talk, surprise, the Bible explains that. Fairly often, secular scientists discover things that are confusing to them. They don't know what to make of it because it doesn't make sense. not what they expected to see. But when you know the Bible, you're like, that's exactly what I would expect. That's what the Bible predicts. That's what the Bible explains. And there's a lot of them. I'm going to go through you know, eight examples this morning. You know, but why is this important? Well, we all know that the world we're living in today is, is upside down. Prior to two years ago, you would agree, yeah, things were always slowly getting worse morally. We're headed you know, kind of downhill slowly. But now the wheels have fallen off. And it, it happens so fast and it makes your head spin. Everything, everything is just upside down. And there are so many issues we're dealing with today. And it's not that any one of these issues is too much for us to handle. They are simply overwhelming the system. It's too, too many. 
it's like the guy up on the stage spinning the plates. He's running around keeping all the plates spinning. That's what we're doing today with you. You think you make some ground with one of them, but then you've got to run over to this other one and you just, you don't, you don't know what to do. The bad news is we can't fix this. There's nothing you can do to fix that. No way. The good news is God is not asking you to fix this, solve the world's problems. He's asking you to evangelize, share the gospel message with those around you. And the worse things get, the easier it should be for us to do that. Because people are, are desperate for hope. They're just, again, the wheels have fallen off. They don't know what's going on. No one knows what's going on. They're all wondering. We have the answer. How could we possibly not share that with them? Even if they're an atheist. Well, I don't believe that Bible. I, I totally get that. I want to share what it says anyway so that you have an accurate understanding of what this is claiming. Even though you don't believe it, I want you to have an accurate understanding versus what someone else told you. It's filled with errors and contradictions. Science has disproven it. There's missing portions. There's extra stuff that got in there and on and on and on. That's what they believe about the Bible because someone else told them that. So this is the, another important point. Someone brings one of those issues up. We shouldn't argue our philosophy versus theirs. Who are we that the whole world should care what we think? We just say, hold on a second, that's an interesting topic. Let me see what the Bible has to say. We turn to our starting point, and we just help them understand what did God say about this fascinating topic that they're bringing up. If they have a problem with what we're sharing, it's not with us. It's with God's Word, and they will be accountable for that. We're just here to help them understand what did God say about these things. It's God's world. <laughs> Sometimes I very tactfully say, you know, if you don't like the way things are, you, you might want to create your own universe because the one you're in it belongs to God, and he gets to set the rules. You know, I want to say that very kindly, but we're just here to help them understand why they're probably struggling with these things, because they're trying to go about things, which is not the way God intended things to go. Again, we're not going to be talking about these issues individually here, but we need to know that we can trust God's Word. And many Christians aren't quick to share their faith because they can't defend God's Word. Some say, well, that's that Bible stuff. You've got to leave the Bible out of it. Never, ever agree to that claim and that command to leave the Bible out of it. You do that, you've lost your starting point. You're done. I didn't share this in the first service, so don't tell them. <laughs> They'll feel like I get ripped off. But when someone says, oh, you've got to leave your, uh, your religion out of it, leave that Bible out of it. You believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. They believe it's not. They're asking you to give up your belief system and argue. They're keeping theirs. <laughs> They're moving ahead with their arguments believing the Bible is not the inspired Word of God. They're not giving up their starting point, but they want you to give up yours. How is that fair? What you should do is say, wait a minute, we can't give up our starting point. It's where we start. Why don't we both admit our biases? I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. You believe it's not, and let's go from there. That's what you need to do, so never give that up. This talk is just another angle. I've got many other talks about the inspiration of Scripture. This one is just going to give you another angle of why we can be so incredibly confident that this Bible is not just a made-up religious book. This is the inspired Word of God from cover to cover. And even though this is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. And you can trust absolutely everything in it. So we're going to take a look at these topics. The Earth's oceans, their origin, and how much water is actually there. Adam and Eve, population bottleneck, living fossils, dinosaurs, and soft tissue. Mutations and something called epigenetics, which I'll explain when we get there. So we'll jump in here. Talking about the Earth's oceans and their origin, it seems kind of disconnected. We're talking about the authority of God's word. Why are we talking about ocean water? This, this will make a lot of sense. 
Here's the standard story. And if, if you're anything like me, and I know I am, uh, you probably went to public school yourself. Some of you are actually still in public school or state university. This is what they teach. But these ocean waters um, have not always existed on our planet, arriving here many hundreds of millions of years after the Earth first took shape four and a half billion years ago. So the Earth came out of this, you know, swirling gases, the nebular hypothesis, four and a half billion years ago, and then millions of years later, these waters came. And where did they actually come from? Our ocean's water arrived in frozen lumps from space during one of the most violent episodes in our planet's early history. Exactly where these comets and asteroids came from is uncertain. Yeah, there's no evidence for it. Additional sources of water. Volcanoes and other fissures in the crust allowed superheated water vapor to escape into the atmosphere. And it rained and rained, possibly for millennia. If nothing else, the deluge recounted by countless mythical creation stories correlates with what happened in the earliest, most tumultuous years of the earth. So saying water's coming from within the earth and it just rained and rained and rained and it sounds a little bit like that biblical thing, but we know that's mythology, right? Well, breaking news. Origin of Earth's water traced back to the birth of our planet, not hundreds of millions of years later, but right at the formation of the Earth. Fragments of Earth's earliest rock, preserved unchanged deep in the mantle until they were coughed up by volcanic eruptions, suggests that our planet has had water from the very beginning. Oh, who would have ever thought that? Now, here's another article. Ancient Earth may have been a watery world with no dry land. I mean, we, you would have never guessed that, well, unless you read the Bible. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's how God created everything. He created it using water, and it was covered with water on day one. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. There was water there right away on day one. God didn't let the dry land appear until later on day three. It was covered with water right from the beginning. That's where it came from, its origins. Now we're going to talk specifically about the amount of water on the earth. It's interesting talking about the flood because the earth today is 70% covered with liquid water. Scientists have discovered a little bit of frozen water on Mars. The secular scientists say they, they're convinced there was a global flood on Mars, but there's no way there could be a flood on the earth. I mean, that's a silly story, right? Even though we have 70% covered with liquid water, that can't be a flood, but a little bit of frozen water, oh, global flood on Mars. That makes no sense whatsoever. Breaking news, Earth may have underground ocean three times that on the surface. So all the water in the oceans, they have three times that much in the layers of the Earth. After decades of searching, scientists have discovered that a vast reservoir of water, enough to fill the Earth's oceans three times over, may be trapped hundreds of miles beneath the surface. But the skeptics say, oh, yeah, there's a silly story about the flood. There's not enough water on the Earth to flood it. That's a crazy story. Well, guess what? Let's say you took the Earth and you smoothed it out like a cue ball. So push the mountains down and put them into the ocean. So you flatten it out, out like a nice, smooth cue ball. There's enough water just in the oceans to cover the earth 1.7 miles deep. That is a lot of water 
that's just in the oceans. And now they think they have three times that much water in the earth. Psalm 104, this is a description of just after the flood. So the whole thing's covered with water. And it said, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. The whole earth was covered with water, even above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they may not, again, cover the earth. So, mountains, like Mount Everest, five and a half miles high. It wasn't that high before the flood. It was lower, covered with water. At the end of the flood, God caused those mountains that did exist to rise up catastrophically. Plate tectonics going on, the mountains are rising, the ocean bases are sinking. Even secular geologists tell us that the ocean bases sank probably a mile. Well, first they rose up a mile, pushing ocean waters onto the continents. Here's a global flood. And at the end, the mountains are rising up, the basins are sinking down, the water is rushing off, going back into the oceans. Why did God do that? To set a boundary as a promise, it'll never happen again. There's still just as much water on the earth today, but the mountains are too high. The basins are too deep. It's physically impossible to flood the earth, and God did that on purpose as a promise. That's what the Bible talks about. This ancient, out antiquated book got it right scientifically, and now modern geology is figuring out, yeah, that looks like that's what happened. Again, that's what we would expect from the Bible, Second Peter chapter 3 again. The earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. God created the earth with water, and he used those waters later as a judgment on mankind's sin, almost 1,700 years after creation. Genesis 7, 11, On that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. People say, that's a silly Bible story. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and that flooded the earth. Guess what? That is a silly story. That would be impossible. But that's not what the Bible says. Yes, it did rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but that was an after effect. The fountains of the deep were broken up first, and that's what even secular scientists talk about. These fissures of superheated water coming from within the earth, shot up into the atmosphere, coming back down as torrential rains for 40 days and 40 nights. So a lot of that water came from within the earth, which we're discovering today. So there's enough water to flood the earth just with the oceans, but now you got water coming from within the earth, which is what the Bible indicates and what we're finding out with modern geology as well. Uh, Pastor Chris mentioned our Grand Canyon tours. I just found out yesterday we have five of them. They're all sold out already. And some of you have already gone from the church, but if, the, if people from the church would like to go again, this is how we could do it, get a group together, and I'll contact Pastor Mike and see if we can coordinate this, but get a group of people together, and I can work with you to pick a date that works for you and works on my calendar, and we can schedule a trip it is amazing. How many of you have actually been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, now, you want to see very few hands go up. How many of you have been to the canyon with a creationist who pointed out all the evidence for the Genesis flood? I'm waiting. <laughs> no hands. The rest of you just saw a big hole in the ground. Now, it's really, really cool. But when you go to the canyon, and you can certainly go on your own, when you get there, it's just like, oh my word, I've seen all the pictures, but this is... The pictures did nothing. This is amazing. And a half an hour later, you're like, this is amazing. And two hours later, you're like, this is, this is amazing. But what else are you going to think other than it's amazing? It looks really cool. But if you can go with a creationist, and if you don't go with me, that's fine. Pick somebody sometime. 
take your children or grandchildren. Our trips are super friendly. friendly. We've had five-year-olds go. We had a couple. They were 80 years old go. We had one guy. He was 85. Uh, it's not even a lot of walking. You're not walking uphill. You're not rock climbing. It's not whitewater rafting. It's perfectly smooth. You don't even get wet. We stay in hotels. You take a bus everywhere. Um, it's super easy trip, and it's so faith-affirming. It's all about the authority of God's Word. I give a lot of little talks along the way about how do we know the Bible is the inspired Word of God, the whole creation-evolution controversy, uh, witnessing techniques, and then we talk about the flood and geology, and we point out things all along the way. So this is what we do. One of the days, we're actually rafting the river. We take a bus through a two-mile tunnel down to the river, and you walk down a ramp, and you get in the raft. You're not repelling to get down there. But we actually take one of these, you know, two of these large rafts, and we're actually on the river. And we go around the famous Horseshoe Bend. You've seen pictures of this. You will actually be on that river going around it. It is so cool. And all along the way, we talk about the layers. We point out all evidences for the global flood. We also spend a day walking on the rim, Kaibab Limestone, looking one mile down to the Colorado River. I'm actually afraid of heights, but I figure this won't be an issue for me because the canyon is not high at all. It's just really deep. <laughs> um, but it's a safe trip. You don't, even, you don't have to get even close to the edge to see everything you need to see. There's even railings, so you can get closer if you want. I'm perfectly fine with it now, even though I really am afraid of heights. I'm pretty good at the widths. doesn't matter how wide things are. That doesn't bother me, but the, the heights can, can kind of get to me. But it's a safe trip, family-friendly trip, and we share a lot of things. I'll throw in one for free here. When you're looking at the Grand Canyon, there's a big hole in the ground. There's a lot of dirt gone, right? 900 cubic miles of dirt, sediment, washed out. And we know what happened to it, right? The Colorado River over millions and millions of years carved out the canyon. Probably all of you were taught that. I was taught that grade school, junior high, high school, college. That is a silly story. Absolutely impossible. Scientifically crazy. If the river carved out that canyon, bringing all those sediments with it. When it gets to the end, it dumps them off, right? It's called a delta. Can you imagine the massive delta that would be at the end of the Colorado River if it carved out the Grand Canyon? Guess what? Not there at all. The river didn't carve it out. It was carved out by a catastrophic flood, and it was all washed out across the continent and into the ocean basins. Leftover water is trickling through the groove that was carved. It's an afterthought. Colorado River, also even more powerful than that. When you're standing on this rim looking down to the Colorado River one mile down and you're seeing 900 cubic miles of sediments gone, there used to be another mile and a half of sediments above where you're standing. So above this point here, there was another mile and a half of sediments, layers, gone. How do we know they were there? Because they still exist just to the north of the canyon in what we call the Grand Staircase. It's Bryson Zion Canyon, and there are a few remnants down by the, the rim here where we can see they used to exist, but most of it's been washed out. The Colorado River, sitting a mile down there, did not carve out a mile and a half of sediments above the top of the canyon. It's physically impossible. It was carved out by massive what we call sheet erosion, and we explain all that on our trips. But again, it all goes back to the authority of God's word. You don't have to be embarrassed if someone brings up the flood story and say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. Just trust Jesus. You can say, bring it on. There was a worldwide flood, and the only way you can explain every major geologic formation on this planet is through a worldwide flood. It's so cool. 
We even afterwards stop and see some dinosaur footprints on an Indian reservation. You can walk right on them. I tell our group, you don't walk on them. We don't want them to wear them down, but they're all over the place. Really cool to see. We also get a really cool photo op at the end. We take the whole group, stand underneath this massive rock. You get a, a picture there. Some people can choose to stay longer. I did it once when my sister and brother-in-law came along with me on a trip and we went to Antelope Canyon, which is right in that area. I actually took this picture with my phone. It's just beautiful. If you want more information, there's on. we have a stand. I only have one brochure sitting there, but you can take a picture of it. You can scan the little QR code, or you can just go to our website, thestartingpointproject.com. But I'll, I'll keep in touch with the church to see if you want to organize a group to pick a date that works with you guys. It's, it's just fascinating. But back to the talk. You probably forgot I was giving a talk. <laughs> um, second line of evidence, confusing to secular scientists but not to Christians. We got Adam and Eve. And you got the Garden of Eden and all that, which secular scientists, they don't buy into that at all, right? Here's their standard story of how mankind got here. And again, most of you learned this in school systems. They believe that chimpanzees and humans share a common ancestor about six million years ago. They don't believe we evolved from chimps. They believe that chimps and humans evolved from a common ancestor. Well, what did that look like? What was it? Well, we don't really know, but it was like an ape-like creature. So some ape-like creature, six million years ago, branched off into you know, gorillas and orangutans and chimps, and then the other branch went off into all the ape-men and hominoids, and then modern man finally over a six-million-year period. That's what they've been teaching. But Newsweek had a cover uh, article called The Search for Adam and Eve. Now, they weren't looking for the biblical Adam and Eve, but they were looking for the first man and first woman because scientists today believe we have all on this planet, every human being on this planet has come from one male and one female. Well, that's the Bible, right? No, don't get excited about that. This isn't a biblical thing. But yes, there was one male and one female, but it wasn't Adam and Eve. In fact, this couple, they didn't even live at the same time, um, which it could actually genetically work that way. But that's what they believe. Yes, one male, one female, but it wasn't Adam and Eve in the Bible because they didn't even live together at the same time. Why have they concluded that? Because they've been studying genetics, and males are the only ones that have a Y chromosome. And by studying the Y chromosome of people all over the planet, they could tell it's all come from one copy that got distributed. So they believe there was one male that passed on his Y chromosome to everyone on this planet. And females are the only ones who pass on the mitochondrial DNA most of our DNA is in the nucleus of our cells, but there's some DNA in the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, and only females pass that on. So by studying that, they figured out there had to be one copy that got distributed to every female on this planet, so one male and one female, but they didn't even live together at the same time. Breaking news. Genetic Adam and Eve did not live too far apart in time. Again, who would have, who would have thunk that? Why chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve were thought to have lived tens of thousands of years apart? Now two major studies suggest that they may have lived around the same time after all. Wow, what a, what a shocker there. Unless, of course, you're familiar with the Bible because Genesis 1, and 31 says, So God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them, and there was an evening and a morning, the sixth day. They were created on the same day and lived together. There was a real Adam and Eve, just like the Bible says, and it's backed up by genetics, and there's so much more to that, but i got to keep moving. Then we have something called a population bottleneck. Here's the breaking news. When humans faced extinction, secular scientists think 
that not too long ago, almost everyone on the planet went extinct, except for a small group that survived. Humans may have come close to extinction about 70,000 years ago, according to the latest genetic research. Now, don't get hung up on the 70,000-year number. Just put it in context. If I had time to give another lecture, I could talk about carbon-14 dating and, and radiometric dating and all that. Just put their number, their secular number, in context. They think we've been evolving from an ape-like creature for about 6 million years. 70,000 years would be, ago would be pretty recent. So what they're saying is fairly recently, almost everyone went extinct except for a small group that survived to repopulate the Earth. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Now, why would they even say that? Why would they go there? Here's why. If evolution were true, and we've been evolving for 6 million years, genetically, we should have spread way, way, way out. So when you tested genetics of people all over the planet, genetically, they should be very, very, very diverse. Well, they did the testing. And it's not very, very, very diverse. It's very narrow. We're all so closely related, that makes no sense. So they say, oh, okay, what happened was, yeah, it did diversify, but almost everyone was wiped out, and just a small group of people survived to repopulate the earth, and it wasn't too long ago, so they haven't had time yet to really spread out like they originally did. So they're coming up with a rescue device, a way to save their story of evolution. And this is how it works visually. So you have a population of people, and the different colors here represent a variety of genetic information that has developed over time. But then a cat catastrophic event occurs in which most people die out, and now you have limited genetic information left in the people that are alive. And then they repopulate the earth, and it's going to take a while to spread out again. So this bottleneck happened genetically. That's what they actually see in real genetics. Here's a quote from uh, one of the leading evolutionists, Jerry Coyne, from the University of Chicago. It's theorized based on genetic evidence that a few tens of thousands of years ago, the population of Homo sapiens was reduced for a period to a few thousand or tens of thousands of people. Such a bottleneck would explain the extremely low level of genetic diversity found within our species. So again, they're surprised it's, there's not much diversity there. And then there was an update after they came out with that. An abrupt population bottleneck specific to human males has been inferred across several old-world Africa, Europe, Asia populations five to 7,000 years before present. So they did further studies with some males just in those areas, and genetically it looks like it's not 70,000 years ago, it's closer to maybe 5,000 years ago that almost everyone was wiped out. That's really interesting because it ties in so closely to what the Bible's been saying all along. Genesis 7:13. on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Eight people entered the ark. They were the only ones who were saved. Everyone else was wiped out about four and a half thousand years ago, and they had to repopulate the earth. Uh, not eight of them, actually six, because Noah and his wife, Joan of Arc, um, didn't have any more kids after the flood. I was just kidding about Joan of Arc. Um, so you have three sons and three wives repopulating the earth. You know what's interesting? When they genetic, I didn't share this for a service either. Um, genetically, when they look at people around the planet, it seems like you could easily, by genetics, lump them into three major categories. Well, you got three sons and three wives coming off the ark, repopulating the earth, 
and producing all the people groups that we have today. And it's, so it's no shock that there would be three major groups there. And then a bonus. They were looking at genetics of people. Then they decided, let's take a look at the genetics of animals. So they did that. A straightforward hypothesis is that almost all existing animal species have arrived from mitochondrial uniformity. That's that bottleneck within the last one to several hundred thousand years. So let me summarize this. They are saying all humans almost went extinct recently. Animals almost went extinct recently. Then animals and humans reemerged at the same time. Again, why does that sound so familiar? Oh yeah, there was a worldwide flood four and a half thousand years ago where you had eight people survive and two of each kind of animal, which would then repopulate the earth. And there's so much more genetic information behind that. It's fascinating, but I got to keep moving. Another category, something called living fossils. Fossils are remains of dead things that got buried in the past. They're calling these living fossils. Uh, frilled sharks have been swimming the Earth's depths since the time of the dinosaurs. So dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. They said they died out about 65 million years ago. Well, breaking news, prehistoric dinosaur-era shark with insane teeth found swimming off the coast of, coast of Portugal. So here's this shark that they said lived with dinosaurs and died out, but now they're finding it still alive, swimming around in the ocean. So apparently it didn't go extinct, it's still around. The rare frilled shark is considered a living fossil because evidence of its existence dates back to at least 80 million years ago. Scientists believe the frilled shark has remained the same both inside and out, unevolved. How did it not evolve in 80 million years of Earth history? We went from an ape-like creature to a human in just 6 million years. This thing's been around 80 million years and it didn't evolve at all? That makes no sense. Evolution works through mutations. Mutations are accidental copying errors. They happen every time creatures reproduce. They can't not make mistakes. But supposedly for 80 million years, it had no real mutations or anything that affected its body at all. That makes no sense whatsoever. Here's another example very similar, a fish called the coelacanth. For years and years and years, we were told the coelacanth went extinct 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs became extinct. Well, here's the problem with that story. We find them swimming around uh, 1938 when they first discovered it. So it, it didn't go extinct. It's still around. And here's their story. So they believe that this thing started to evolve roughly about 420 million years ago, and it existed up till the beginning of the Paleocene, 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs died out. That's when it died out. That's where they see the fossils of it, in those layers. Now, these layers of the geologic column here, they made up names for them and ages. They assigned the ages before they even invented radiometric dating, which there are problems with radiometric dating to begin with. That's a whole other talk. But... They assigned all the ages before they even had radiometric dating. So that's the story of this with the coelacanth. Well, the problem is it's still alive, so it didn't go extinct. So it did continue to live for another 65 million years, but it never fossilized? In 65 million years of its history, it never fossilized? That makes no sense whatsoever. Worse than that, since it started to evolve 420 million years ago, it didn't evolve at all because it's identical to the fossil. It didn't evolve wings or legs or anything in four. 120 million years of evolution. Nothing happened. That makes no sense at all. Makes a lot more sense to go with the biblical narrative 
Genesis 121, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. Day five, God creates these creatures. And then we have the flood again, which comes along and buries a lot of creatures. And so we have these creatures being buried in those layers because that's where they were. These are ecological zones when you look at the fossil record. It's where things were living when the flood came. It's not slow, gradual evolution over, you know, 600 million years of Earth history or anything like that at all. It's a whole other talk that I would give. But related to some of this as well is dinosaurs and soft tissue. Now, when you think of dinosaurs, the first thing you think of is the Bible, right? No. <laughs> And if you're in school, the teacher or professor will never say, okay, today we're going to learn all about dinosaurs, so everyone get your Bible out. <laughs> you know, it seems very disconnected. Even Christians are like, well, the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs. Oh, yes, it does. There's so much you can learn about dinosaurs. But we're going to be talking about soft tissue here in just a second. There's no shortage of children's books on dinosaurs. That's how we get you know, them started in reading. You know, that ah, dinosaur book. Children love dinosaurs, so they'll read books. That was the only reason I read I hated reading when I was in grade school, junior high, high school, college, and beyond. <laughs> um, I love reading the technical stuff now and anything having to do with Christianity, but um, there's no shortage of books. Even Dr. Seuss teaches us and our children and grandchildren about dinosaurs, and that's, this is what this book said. I am the cat in the hat. You have met me before. Today we'll speak of the great dinosaur. Dinosaurs live on the earth long ago, before you and me, so how do we know? From fossils. Dinosaur teeth, eggs, and bone got stuck on the muck, then that muck turned to stone. These fossils are old, they are dusty and warm because they were made long before you were born. Then it goes on to say, not hundreds of years, not thousands of years, but millions of years long before you were born. So what is Dr. Seuss teaching us about dinosaurs? That they lived millions of years ago and they died out long before people were even on the planet. So people and dinosaurs never lived together. That's what I learned when I was going to school. And I actually went to a really good church, but they didn't comment on it. So as I'm learning things in school, I'm going to church and learning about Jesus. I go to school, learn about history. I go to church, learn about Jesus. I go to school, learn about science. I go to church, learn about Jesus. I go to school, learn about dinosaurs. I go to church, learn about Jesus. I'm like, they're not commenting on this, so it must be true. And I, I have to go here. I can't go to church and learn about dinosaurs. So, But then eventually I was like, wait a minute, these two don't fit together. And that, that's a problem. And so I started researching and I found out, oh, okay, well, some of the things I'm learning here aren't scientifically valid and the Bible pro pro provides a much better framework for them. And that's what we'll see here. Now, my wife, who didn't come with me on this trip, um, she loves going to Goodwill. She's really good at finding deals. And I just, I'm not a Goodwill or a shopper person, but sometimes I'll go with her. And one day I was in there just trying to kill time and I was just looking through the men's T-shirts and I pulled one out. I said, hey, Amy, look at this. This is just like my T-shirt. She says, no, that is your T-shirt, and you're not buying it back. <laughs> she took it out of my closet and gave it away, and I didn't get it back. She goes, you've had that for over 20 years. I said, yeah, but it still works. <laughs> um, but another time we were in Goodwill, and I was just getting bored out of my skull, and I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over to the children's book section, and I'm going to find a book on dinosaurs. And I bet the first book I find, and when I pull off, I will turn to page number one, and it will talk about millions of years ago. And if I am right, I owe me a hot fudge sundae. <laughs> and if I'm wrong, I owe me a hot fudge sundae. <laughs> so either way, it was going to work out well. So I went over and I found this book, and I bought it. 
so I could take a picture of it and put it in my PowerPoint. And I turned to page number one, and it said, dinosaurs lived long, long ago. Even before people lived on the earth, they ruled and roamed the land for millions of years. So, yep, I got the hot fudge Sunday. <laughs> And even the back cover talked about millions of years. And millions of years ago, dinosaurs walked the earth. So that's just what you learn. That's a fact. Everyone in this sanctuary this morning knows dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. Actually, none of you know that. Actually, no one on the planet knows that. It's just what we've been taught over and over and over and over, right? So it becomes true because it's got to be true because everybody says that. All the scientists say that. You all know, too, that it takes millions of years to form oil and coal, right? You've been taught that over and over and over. No, it just takes a few hours. You can form coal and oil in a laboratory in a few hours. It doesn't take time. It takes the right conditions, which the flood actually would have provided. You can form it in a very short period of time. And there's a lot more about dinosaurs. i got to keep moving here. I was actually on a dinosaur excavation two summers ago in western Colorado, uh, very, very fascinating. It was very close to a city called Dinosaur, Colorado, which I didn't even know existed, but I thought, I'm so close, i got to swing through that town to see what it's like. And I found a sign in the name of a church there. It was called Dinosaur Bible Fellowship. <laughs> thought, how cool is that? I bet there are a lot of kids there. <laughs> um, but anyway, I did the dinosaur excavation. Here's me digging up a bone from a Camarasaurus, if you don't know what one of those are. Uh, it's 66 feet long, 44,000 pounds, and if I were standing next to it wearing all yellow, that's what, what it would look like, which um, pretty big, and so we were digging up a femur bone, and this is where that fits in on the dinosaur. Why were we looking for dinosaur bones? So that we could search for soft tissue and red blood cells, which sounds really bizarre, and I'll talk more about that in just a second here. These bones are actually on their way over to the University of Liverpool for testing in the United Kingdom. I'll be traveling over there in August to do a lecturing tour for about a week and a half. Um, but here's the standard view on dinosaurs. Again, what we're all taught. Dinosaurs lived during the Mesozoic era from the late in the Triassic period, about 225 million years ago, until the end of the Cretaceous, about 65 million years ago. But we now know that they actually live on today as the birds. They are dead serious about that. Dinosaurs did not go extinct. They evolved into birds. So you've probably seen a hummingbird, right? That's a dinosaur. <laughs> that sounds funny. I have an article and a picture. They, they said, yes, even a hummingbird is a dinosaur. Why? Because when they look at animals, they've got to figure out where did they come from. When they look at us and then look at all of the choices... The closest thing to a human is, you know, like a chimp or an ape. So, like, well, yeah, we've evolved from an ape-like creature. That's their story. And I have a whole series of talk on ape men and all that as well. And look at birds. They're like, they could not figure out where birds came from. Certainly couldn't have been created by God. So they had to come from somewhere. So their best idea is maybe some smaller dinosaurs eventually evolved feathers, and they turned into birds. Wonderful story. Just no real evidence for that. But that's what birds are today. But breaking news Ancient tissue found in 195-million-year-old dinosaur rib. Tissue, soft tissue, flexible, red blood cells. It might be the oldest soft tissue sample ever found. Researchers discovered ancient collagen and protein remains preserved in the ribs of a dinosaur that walked the earth 195 million years ago. That is crazy. Soft tissue and red blood cells in dinosaur bones? 
Now, I know you're all looking at me, you are sick and tired of hearing about soft tissue and dinosaur bones. It's all anyone talks about today, right? Every news story and cover of magazines and internet articles, right? On and on. No? Oh, that's because they just discovered it two days ago and it hasn't had time to hit the news cycle, right? Try 1995. Some of you were still alive back then, huh? <laughs> 1995 we've known about this. How come no one's talking about it? Because they can't explain it. If you read some technical journals, they'll say, oh, well, if there was iron in the presence there, it could preserve these materials a little longer. Yeah, iron could preserve it a little longer, but not millions and millions of years. There's no way. In fact, the more iron you have, the more it actually will destroy it. But they're finding these things. The secular scientists who discovered this, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, when she first saw it, she was like, well, it can't be soft tissue and red blood cells because this is 65 million years old. It's a dinosaur bone. So she did her test again. And she said, wow, it looks like red blood cells and soft tissue, but it can't be because it's a dinosaur bone. So she did her test again. Looked like soft tissue. Did her test again. Looked like soft tissue. Did her test again. Looked like soft tissue. She did it 17 times. They finally had to conclude, I guess this is really soft tissue. So all the secular scientists said, I guess we were wrong, and they went to church and worshipped Jesus. <laughs> no, they said, well, there must be something in nature that can preserve red blood cells and soft tissue for millions and millions of years. That is a blind faith and goes against everything we know about science. I'm going to show you a very short video, and you are going to get to see with your own eyes soft tissue from dinosaur bones. And you ask yourself, is this 65 million years old? It stretches and snaps back. That's from a dinosaur. This is not 65 or 100 or 200 million years old. It's absolutely impossible. And we are finding it more and more and more now. They were never looking for it before because they didn't expect it. When they found it by accident, they kind of started checking out. I sat through an hour and a half lecture looking at slide after slide after slide after slide after slide. They're finding it all over the place. And so creationists, we need our own bones to do our own research because we can't just wait on them because they don't want to talk about it. So we're digging up our own and having these things tested, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And now we even have DNA fragments from dinosaur bones. DNA is more fragile than red blood cells and soft tissue. It can't last for millions of years. It makes no sense if you go with the Bible narrative, it makes a lot of sense. Genesis 1, 24 and 31. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God created the land creatures on day six. The Bible does not say that God created the land creatures on day six, uh, well, except for the dinosaurs. No, God says he created everything in six days. Exodus twenty eleven. that's part of the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God himself. He created everything. In six days, and he created the land creatures on day six. Well, guess what? Dinosaurs are land creatures. It must have been created on day six. That's a whole other series of talks here. Genesis six seventeen again. The flood, almost four and a half thousand years ago, buried a lot of creatures that were living, including dinosaurs. And so some of those bones got preserved, and those materials, they could last for a few thousand years, but certainly not millions of years. I have a three-part video series on dinosaurs in the Bible. It's, it's fascinating. It, it's a wake-up call because like a lot of what you think you, you believe is not scientifically valid at all, and it certainly doesn't fit in with Scripture, but Scripture does the best job of explaining what we're seeing scientifically. So second to last example here, mutations. 
I already mentioned that mutations are accidental copying errors. When creatures or animals or people reproduce, all they're doing is they're copying their DNA. They take existing DNA and they pass it on. So my, my dad gave me a strand, my mom gave me a strand, and then that information was used to develop my body. There's so much information on the DNA that mistakes happen. Copying errors happen. It's impossible not to. So copying errors get passed on, and evolutionists say that's what causes evolution by making mistakes in existing information. This is what they say. This is UC Berkeley. Mutations are essential to evolution. They are the raw material of genetic variation. Without mutations, evolution could not occur. So they say the way you take a single-celled organism that came from dead chemicals, which is impossible, the way you take that single-celled organism and turn it into a human being is taking the complex information in that cell and just making random changes to it over time. And all of a sudden, you've got a human being. And the brain of the human being can explain everything else now by making mistakes in the existing information 3.8 billion years ago. That makes no sense whatsoever. Breaking news, human evolution enters an exciting new phase. This is fascinating. They've discovered that most of the mutations that we've found arose in the last 200 generations or so. So we can see the mistakes in our DNA. We can see those mutations. And they're saying, wow, it looks like all the ones we're observing came about within the last 200 generations. That makes no sense if you're an evolutionist. They think we've been evolving for six million years. If we've been copying our DNA for six million years, how come is it that just in the last 200 generations the mistakes have come in to play? They should have been there right from the get-go for six million years. In fact, every time we reproduce as humans, we add about another hundred mistakes to our DNA. One evolutionist, a Russian scientist, said, why are we not dead a hundred times over? If we keep making these mistakes, we shouldn't even function anymore. Six million years of doing that, but we're still here because I don't think we were evolved from an ape-like creature for six million years. I think we were created by God more recently. They also go on to say this, 73% of all genetic variation arising in just the last 5,000 years of variations that seem to cause harm, of these mutations that cause harm, uh, a full 91% emerged in this time, the, the 5,000 years. We'll get back to that when we look at the biblical narrative here. Now, I believe you can make a really, really, really strong biblical argument for Adam appearing on this planet roughly 6,000 years ago. When I was here a number of years ago, I did a whole seminar on a Saturday on creation in six days. Biblically speaking, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Atheists know there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago. They don't think he was God, but they know that's when he lived. They also know that there was a man named Abraham who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. So you get Jesus 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Jesus, Abraham. So that's 4,000 years ago to Abraham from us. And then you look at the genealogies and the chronologies in the Bible from Abraham back to Adam, it's about another 2,000 years. That's where you come up with the 6,000 years. It sounds crazy to people. I totally get that. I can't go down that rabbit trail right now. Biblically speaking, Adam, historically, is about 6,000 years ago. And it's interesting, human writing only goes back about five, five and a half thousand years. If we've been around in our modern form for 200,000 years, how come writing didn't show up until recently? Anyway, can't go down there. And a, an average generation time, we'll just say 30. Some people have children before their 30s. Some will have children after their 30. We'll just take 30 for an average. You do the math, you come up with 200 generations. That's all there's been since Adam. 
about 200 generations. That's why all these mutations seem to have come up within that time frame because we didn't have any time before that. And then the 5,000 years that they mentioned, that 73% of all the, the variation came up within that time, and then the really bad ones, that's when they really reared their head within 5,000 years. Fascinating. You got God creating everything in the past, and about 4,500 years ago, God sends a flood in judgment. And now you only have eight people repopulating the earth, actually six of those eight repopulate the earth. You have a limited gene pool that's going to kind of step up the mutational rates, plus you have more harmful radiation coming in. So we would expect mutations to really start kicking in there, and that's what we see genetically. We see that kicking in about 4,500 years ago because that's what the Bible says. It's a whole other topic, but you know about all the ages in the Old Testament. They live, you know, Adam lived 900 and in 60 years, 930 years, Methuselah 969 years, Noah 950 years, and all that. It's like, come on, that's crazy. That's not crazy at all. There's no reason that couldn't have happened. And what's interesting is you have all those ages listed, and then the flood occurs, and all the ages drop off. If you plot those ages, you put them on a graph, you get a certain curve. What's fascinating about that, that was written over two and a half thousand years ago by Moses, these ages. They create a curve that matches perfectly the genetic decline that we're seeing today. So when they see how we're declining genetically, that happens to match, match this curve that's in the Bible. So either you have to think that Moses tried to contrive something so that it would fit a genetic curve in the future, or that Moses just made up fake ages that just coincidentally fit the genetic curve, or Moses simply recorded the ages of real people and real ages, and it matches up because that's what happened, and the ages dropped off after the flood because God says, I'm going to limit your time span now because look at all the trouble you get in when you live that long. And that's what we see. It's, it's fascinating. There's so much genetics to that. The last segment here, something called epigenetics. Epa meaning above or beyond, outside of. Most of the genetics we see in the nucleus there on the, the DNA ladder now we know there's actually information outside of that, and it's fascinating. The standard view of, on DNA has been that people used to think that once your epigenetic code was laid down in early development, that was it for life. The breaking news from Time says why your DNA isn't your destiny. Subtitle, the new science of epigenetics reveals how the choices you make can change the genes, your genes and those of your kids. Choices you make can affect the genes of your children and even grandchildren. So if you have really bad health practices, you don't exercise at all, you're eating poorly, that can affect the genetics of your kids and grandchildren. You can even just be a bitter person, and that can affect the genes of your kids and your grandchildren. This new study is, is absolutely fascinating, not surprising to Christians. It has to do with something called methyl tags. Now, the DNA is like the coiled-up ladder. You all know that. The rungs on the ladder, they're called nucleotides. That's where all the information is, all the coding is, is what rungs are on there. The methyl tags are outside of that. They're tags that kind of attach to the sides of the ladder. And when they attach, they often will stop genetic information from being expressed. So these rungs here would normally build a certain protein or whatever. The methyl tags come along and all of a sudden, now it can't develop that gene. Or sometimes it'll cause it to make even more of that than normal. So these methyl tags can attach and they can attach based on our 
choices. Exercising, eating, attitudes, whatever can affect these tags. And let me show you a real-life example here. Scientists took some laboratory mice, and they exposed them to the smell of cherry blossom, very pleasant smell. But every time they did that, they gave the mice a little shock in their foot. Not too bad, but an un unpleasant feeling there. So the mice acquired some learned behavior. When that smell came out, they're like, oh, no, I know what's coming, and they would get shocked. People do that. Dogs do that. Animals. It's, it's, it's a very natural thing. You totally get that. You can train someone to respond a certain way. Then they bred these mice, and they had baby mice. Now, the baby mice obviously knew nothing about their parents' upbringing and their experiences or anything, but they exposed the baby mice to the smell of cherry blossom, and the mice started shaking right away. They didn't shock them. They never shocked the baby mice at all. They just exposed them to the smell, and they shook as if they were going to get shocked. And that surprised the scientists. So they looked at the DNA of these mice. Guess what? The DNA did not change. The rungs on the ladder did not change. The information did, did not change. What happened? These tags got passed along. And so the baby mice had the same experience, not by changing the information, but by the methyl tags. And I've heard another story that um, there were youth whose grandparents had gone through the Holocaust. Now, a lot of people went through the Holocaust and survived. That's unbelievably traumatic, and it really affected them in their lives and their behaviors and all their experiences. They studied these grandchildren, and a lot of the grandchildren had the same traits. Even though they didn't go through the Holocaust, some of them didn't even really know about what happened in the Holocaust. But it has to do with epigenetic information being passed on. Now, how in the world does that tie into the Bible? I'm being careful with this one. I don't want to push this too far, but I, I think, my opinion, is that there's a tie here. Exodus 34, 7. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is a covenantal thing, not a legal thing. What does that mean? This is not saying if the father murders somebody, his children or grandchildren should be put to death or put in prison forever because of his crime. It's not a legal thing. This is a covenantal thing. If the father breaks his covenant before God, that can affect his children and grandchildren. If he's worshiping false idols, that can have an effect. It's not a guarantee, but it can have an effect on his children and grandchildren. The good news is, that's not a death sentence for the, the children or the grandchildren. Many times in the Bible, we, we saw that happening with the fathers, you know, erecting these altars and things for these false gods, and then the children saying, my dad set these up. We're tearing them down. We're wa worshiping the true God, the, the God of Israel. And then it reversed those effects. And it's the same thing even with physical things. Maybe your parents, you know, had poor health practices or whatever, and you have some effects from that. You can say, you know what, I'm going to try to eat a little healthier, I'm going to try to exercise, I'm going to try to be more positive, whatever it is. You can actually reverse that. So it's not doom and gloom. So it can be reversed physically by making better choices, and it can be reversed physically or spiritually by making better choices. But I think the Bible discusses something like this, so it's not shocking for us to see that this can be actually played out within our genetics. So... That was surprised the Bible explains that. There's just eight examples. There are many, many other examples we could go through. But once again, we don't have to be embarrassed about the Bible and say, I know you're into science, but I, you know, I'm into the Bible. 
as if there's a choice, you've got to make a choice between the two. Most major areas of science we have were founded by Bible-believing Christians. That's part of a whole other talk that I go through. The, there's never, ever, ever, ever a conflict between science and the Bible. Never. There are many conflicts between some scientist opinions and the Bible. <laughs> but those are their opinions. It's not a problem with science. It's their interpretation of what they're seeing. And the way you interpret things is by using what you already believe. Anytime you see something new, you have to take what you already believe, you use that as your starting point to look at the new thing to, t to tell yourself what you think of that. And that's what secular scientists do. Their starting point is that the Bible is not the inspired word of God and God did not create things. So when they look at something, they come up with an explanation that is naturalistic, apart from the supernatural, apart from the Bible. So yeah, there's, there's going to be conflicts between their opinions, which change because we keep learning new things. In the Bible, but true science always backs us up. It's very, very exciting, and we need that in a world that's upside down. I also skipped this this morning. I forgot just to cover our resources really quickly. My least favorite part. I got a lot of stuff out there. There's 11 DVDs. They're all streamable. We have three books. So one book, Creation to Christ. It's really old, like three days old. <laughs> it arrived in my driveway the day before I got on the plane to come out here. I haven't even looked at it yet. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, and this other one is also old. That's at least three months old. Um, but anyway, three books out there. Uh, DVDs are also streamable. We have one of everything packages. And if you get the DVDs, we throw in the streaming for free. And any new streaming videos we come out with will be included. So if you purchase that, I got 20 more coming out um, that those will be included as well. Um, I also me already mentioned the Grand Canyon trip, so I'll fast forward through that. Our latest DVDs are a five-part series on the inspiration of Scripture and a four-part series on the Genesis Flood. Skip that. We also have a e free email newsletter. You can sign up on our table or right from our website. It comes out once a month. I've also done a lot of live stream broadcasts, which are archived on our website. So if you go to the website, you can watch those for free on a lot of different topics. Um, we have a monthly email newsletter that I write with a question of the month. <coughs> Excuse me. I knew that was coming. <laughs> Um, question of the month, I always throw a question out there to get you to think a little deeper and to think more biblically on things, so I've written about 125 of those. If you'd like me to speak somewhere else, I've been speaking for 37 years, I've never charged a penny, never will. We do ask that travel expenses be covered, but there's a request form out there as well you can fill out. So with that, you should have our website up here, thestartingpointproject.com, if you have additional questions. So wrapping this whole thing up, kind of cool. But I don't want you to just walk out of here saying, that was really cool, where do you want to go for lunch? And then you go on with your day. If you do that, this was just trivia. So here's a point. I'm assuming that most of you here this morning not only already believe in God and believe in the Bible, but you've taken it a step further. You actually have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is your Savior. So most of you who have already done that, you know that God's standard is 100% perfection, which is kind of depressing because we could never achieve that. No matter how good we try to be, we're, for, we're far short of that. That's depressing. That's why God said it's his whole point, sending his son who paid the price for our sins. So Christianity is all about acknowledging that. We can't meet God's standard, but he sent his son to die on a cross to pay for our sins as a free gift. You cannot earn it. You just accept it and you say, thank you. Your sins are forgiven and you could spend eternity with your creator. Most of you have already done that. Some of you probably haven't. And some of you are very curious about it. 
Some of you haven't, and you're not that curious. You don't even know why you're here. I'm just honored you're here this morning. Awesome choice to be here. A great place. Come back next week. Um, for those of you who are here checking it out or here and very skeptical, I would say don't put off the decision any further to place your trust in Christ, to have your sins forgiven, have your eternity taken care of, and then you got the rest of your life, whether it's two hours or 50 years, to look into these other interesting questions about carbon-14 dating and dinosaurs and the violence in the Bible and on and whatever the questions might be that you have. Most skeptics that I run into are really smart people, very sincere, and they have great questions. So you probably have great questions as well. But I would say, make it a point today to establish that relationship with Jesus Christ. Say, God, I don't understand all of this, but I do know that I'm a sinner and I can't be good enough. Thank you for this free gift you're offering me. I'm taking it. I'm not just going to academically believe it's true. I am personally taking it. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be able to spend eternity with your Creator. And then you can talk to the pastors here. You can talk to other people to learn a little bit more about this going forward. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. But afterwards, uh, Pastor Chris will be up here and others. And then there's a prayer room in the back too if you want to talk to someone about further information. But don't, don't put it off any further. When you do put it off, you're actually not really putting it off. You are making a decision today to reject Jesus Christ. You don't want to think of it that way. You just, well, I'll think about it later. I've got to think this through. Well, no, you are deciding right now, I reject Jesus Christ. I'm not accepting that. So you don't want to be in that position because none of us has a guarantee of how long we're going to be here. Things happen. More and more people are, you know, something's happening. They're dying. We don't know. We don't want to gamble with that. Get that taken care of today. And then the blinders will be removed, and a lot of this will make a lot more sense because God and his Holy Spirit that he gives you will be working through your life and then God will use you to share that message with others. And last thing I'll say is, I went over a lot of these things so that the rest of you can go out and win arguments with skeptics and make them look silly, right? No, <laughs> that's not at all why I shared this. I shared this so that for those of you who are Christians, it would strengthen your faith, be more confident in the authority of God's word, so you would more boldly go out and graciously share the gospel message with a lost and dying world. People need hope more than ever. We have the answer in Jesus Christ, so why wouldn't we share that? And you want to do it graciously, let them, let them know you really care and you're there to help. So I will close in a word of prayer and look forward to seeing you out in the lobby afterwards if you have questions. Dearly Father, we just thank you so much for this time we've had to take a look at the authority of your word. Thank you for giving it to us. And again, I pray for each person here today, uh, those who... I don't have a relationship with you. I pray today would be the day. And then for the rest, God, I pray that this week, this coming week, God, you bring someone in their path who needs to hear the truth of Jesus Christ, that hope. And I pray that you would prompt them to share and let the Holy Spirit do all the heavy lifting. But we just thank you for your graciousness and the patience you show us each day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.